You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Well, Thomas Jefferson was very interested in the life and teaching of Jesus. And so in 1820, he put together a book about Jesus. And here's what he did. He took his Bible and a knife and some glue, and he cut parts of the Bible out with a knife and glued them into a book. And today, this work is called the Jefferson Bible. It contains all of Jesus' teaching. It contains some facts about his life, But it doesn't include any of Jesus' miracles or anything supernatural because Jefferson didn't believe that God supernaturally intervened in our world. And so this is how the Jefferson Bible ends. After describing Jesus' death by crucifixion, it says, In the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb. There they laid Jesus and rolled a great stone to the door of the tomb and departed. The end. Well, praise God, friends, that wasn't the end. Praise God, Jefferson was wrong. Because the death and burial of Jesus is not the end of the story of Jesus. Friends, today I want to tell you some great news. Jesus Christ is alive. He is risen from the dead. And he is alive today. And he is not just alive in our memories. He is not just alive in our hearts. He is not just alive as a disembodied spirit somewhere. He is not alive in the same way that people say that Elvis is alive. This is not a rumor. This is not a hoax. This is not a conspiracy theory. This is not fake news. No, friends, the risen body of Jesus Christ is alive today. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will live and reign forevermore. And today we're going to talk about why this is the most important news in the history of the world and why we can know it's true and why it's of infinite consequence. And that's what we're going to see today as we continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew. Today we'll be in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 15. And we're going to see four points in this passage today. First, Jesus is risen. Second, Jesus' resurrection proves that everything he ever said was true. Third, Jesus' resurrection leads to the forgiveness of all who believe. And fourth, Jesus' resurrection is denied only at great personal peril. So let's start with our first point. And I warn you, this is our longest point. It will take up more than half of the sermon. So if you, you know, in a little bit, you're like, man, he's still on point one. Don't worry. But point one is this. Jesus is risen. Now, Matthew's gospel is a biography of Jesus. And in its opening words, it tells us who Jesus is and why he matters. Matthew 1.23 tells us that Jesus' birth fulfills an ancient prophecy from Isaiah, which said, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now you might say, well, wait a minute. Jesus' name was Jesus, not Emmanuel. But Emmanuel means God with us, and that's who Jesus is. He is God, the eternal Son, who took on true humanity. 
who came to live as one of us. But why would God do that? Why would he take on humanity with all its limitations? Well, Matthew tells us that too. As the angel speaks to Joseph, saying in Matthew 121, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, Jesus' life had a purpose. Jesus came into this world on a rescue mission. He came to save. That's what his name means. Jesus means Yahweh or God saves. God saves. That's Jesus' name and that's Jesus' mission. Well, what did he come to save us from? Our sins. You say, well, what's sin? Sin is the universal problem of the human race. Whether we are young or old, rich or poor, man or woman, irrespective of ethnicity or politics or education. Friend, I want you to know sin is the largest and most threatening problem in your life, and it's, it's the same for me. It's the, it's the biggest problem in my life, too. Sin is opposition to God. God is a good and loving and righteous king over this universe, but despite his goodness, we rebel against him. That's because we're sinners by nature. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God. They corrupted themselves. And friends, we have inherited their corruption. Genesis 5 says that after sinning, Adam fathered a sin in his own likeness. That tells us Adam's fallenness has been transmitted to all of us, to all his descendants. That's why David says in Psalm 51, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Friend, we're all sinners from the start. We're sinners by nature. And we then become sinners by choice. We do what God forbids, and we fail to do what God commands. Listen to this description of our natural condition from Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and being by nature children of wrath. This tells us two things. First, we are all slaves of sin. We are slaves of our fleshly desires. We chase what looks good and what feels good and what makes us feel important. We are all dupes of the world system, believing the lies that are whispered to us by the culture. And ultimately, in our natural condition, this means that we are unwittingly serving Satan as his pawns and his rebellion against God. And if that's not bad enough, the second thing Ephesians 2 tells us is there's a terrible consequence for all this. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. God has justly decreed that in his universe, we who are sinners, who are traitors to his reign, we must die. And so we're all born under the sentence of physical death. And Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are also born spiritually dead, separated from God, the source of all life and goodness. And more than that, Paul says, we are children of wrath. That is to say, we are in danger of eternal death, which is how the Bible talks about suffering in hell. 2 Thessalonians 1 explains it as the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. Friends, that is some bad news, is it not? 
We all have a massive and dangerous problem. And friends, I want you to know sin is not simply somebody else's problem. It is my problem and it is your problem. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. I am guilty. You are guilty. We are guilty. But even though we are guilty sinners who deserve to go to hell forever, God is rich in mercy. And God the Father sent God the Son into this world to take on true humanity, to be born as Jesus, to deliver us from the power of sin and to rescue us from the penalty of sin. But how does Jesus rescue people from sin? Well, he explains in Matthew 20, verse 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Jesus says that he came to give his life as a ransom payment for many. That's how he achieves our rescue. He dies for us. But why does this work? Why does Jesus' death save people from their sins? Well, because Jesus is like us and because Jesus is unlike us. Jesus is like us in that he is truly human. But Jesus is unlike us in that he is not guilty of sin. By his virgin birth, he did not inherit our fallen condition. And during the course of his life, he always perfectly obeyed his Father. See, Jesus lived the perfect sinless life that you and I have failed to live. And so when he gave up his life to death, it was not because he was guilty. It was because we were guilty. Jesus died the death you and I deserve. He died on the cross in our place as our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For our sake God made him to be sin who knew no sin. On the cross, Jesus literally became the embodiment of human sin. And the penalty that should have fallen on us fell on him. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus endured the furious wrath of the Father, which we should have experienced. So, and he did this so that we might never have to taste the pains of hell. And after he suffered the very worst brutality that man could do to him, after he suffered the very wrath of the Father, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Matthew 27, verse 50 says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He dies having completed his mission. And we saw last week that after Jesus died, he was buried. If you've got your Bible open, look at Matthew 27, verse 57. There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate, the Roman governor, and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. So Joseph prepares Jesus' body for burial and buries Jesus in his own tomb. Joseph's tomb becomes Jesus' tomb. Now I want to draw your attention to a few details about Joseph's tomb that Matthew describes. Joseph's tomb is not a cave with multiple entrances. No, this is a tomb which has been carved out of the solid rock of a hillside. There's only one way in or out. 
Now, these sorts of tombs in first century Judea usually had entrances that sat very low to the ground. You'd have to stoop or crawl to enter or exit. And the entrance was sealed with a large rock. Many wealthy people's tombs from this era were closed in this way. In front of the tomb entrance, there was built a groove in the ground, and a rock would then be slid into this groove, which would basically keep the rock wedged in place. This was a standard defense against grave robbing. It would require a lot of force to move the stone. And having closed Jesus in the tomb like this, Joseph left, thinking that was the end of Jesus. And that's where we left off last time. And that's where Thomas Jefferson left off in his Bible. But it isn't where Matthew leaves off, because now we come to chapter 28, and we find ourselves on Sunday morning. And look at verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Now, these two ladies had been disciples of Jesus. And we saw last week they had shown exceptional devotion to him. When Jesus was arrested, his closest friends, the 11 disciples we're most familiar with, they all ran away. They deserted him. But a group of loyal women remained faithful, and they followed Jesus even to his cross. But after Jesus died, these two ladies alone, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they followed Jesus even to his tomb. And they were the last ones there after Joseph of Arimathea left. And they sat there weeping. But now once the Sabbath is over, here they come again. And Mark's gospel tells us they bring a friend with them this time. And they come with a purpose. Mark chapter 16, verse 1 says, They came so that they might go and anoint him. Jesus had been buried hastily on Friday. There was not enough time to observe all of the traditional uh, things that were done to a body that marked out a dignified burial. Jesus had received some honors in his death. John's gospel tells us that his body was bound in linen cloths with about 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes. But that was only part of what was supposed to be done. And so now these ladies returned to the tomb to do all that had been neglected on Friday, to add their own special tribute to their fallen master. But as they approached the tomb, the ladies realized they've got a big problem. Mark 16, 3 says, And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Moving that stone, that was a big problem. It was going to take a lot of force to dislodge it beyond what these ladies could generate. Moreover, there was another problem these women were not aware of, because the day before had been the Sabbath. And that, on that day, the ladies would not have come to the tomb. But what did happen on that day was the Jewish religious authorities had arranged for Roman soldiers to be deployed to secure the tomb. We saw this last week in verse 66 of Matthew 27. These soldiers went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. These soldiers are going to make sure absolutely nobody can roll away that stone. And so we might expect these ladies are going to have some really big problems when they finally get to Jesus' tomb. But all these problems melt away as they arrive. Because the scene at the tomb is totally unlike what they expect. And it's totally unlike what we expect having read chapter 27. Because the tomb that had been closed and sealed and guarded is no longer. Why? What's happened? Well, Matthew tells us, look at verse 2 of chapter 28. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven 
and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now when we read all the Gospels together, it seems like these things happened shortly before the women arrived. They did not see the angel in action, only the after effects. But picture it in your minds. The guards patrolling the tomb, these fearsome Roman soldiers representing the most powerful empire in the world, with all the might of Rome standing behind them. It's a totally secure location. And then suddenly an earthquake strikes, which heralds the descent of this luminous heavenly figure to earth. And the angel comes down, and he walks over, and he rolls away the stone. And what do the guards do? After all, these are Roman legionnaires. These are the most experienced, hardened, professional killers in world history. They're going to stand and fight, right? Nope. They fall down like they're dead. Friends, this is what happens when the might of the world opposes the might of heaven. The might of this world crumbles and falls. And in the presence of this angel, these guys sprawl out on the ground. And then the angel sits on the stone, a sign of disrespect for this stone that had tried to lock the Lord Jesus away forever. Friend, that is what heaven thinks about the schemes of man. That is what heaven thinks about the power of death. Not much. And this is the scene that the women come upon. And it would have been absolutely astonishing. But as they approach, the angel speaks. And he explains what they're seeing. Look at verse 5. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. While it was right that these soldiers should be terrified by God's angel, the angel wants the ladies to know that they who love Jesus have no reason for terror here. Instead, he's come to bring them some great news. Jesus has risen from the dead, just as he prophesied on many occasions in this book. I'll read you just one. Chapter 20, verse 18. Jesus had said before his last week to the disciples, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. The disciples didn't understand that Jesus really meant what he was saying, but he did. And now every aspect of that prophecy has come true. Yes, Jesus was betrayed. He was condemned. He was mocked and flogged and crucified. Yes, he had died. He'd even been buried. But Acts 2.24 says, God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For chapter after chapter in this book, we have seen people oppose Jesus and scheme against Jesus. And the Romans thought they'd killed Jesus. Then the Jewish religious authorities thought they were rid of Jesus. Even death thought it had acquired dominion over Jesus. But friends, they were all wrong because Jesus is victorious. Jesus owned death. Jesus totally triumphed over every human and spiritual adversary that raised a hand against him. Friends, Jesus has conquered. 
and he walked out of his tomb as a victorious conqueror. And he had his angel sit on that stone that was supposed to imprison him forever. Friends, you need to know today, Jesus is Lord of all, and he is alive. And now his angel offers the first proof of that. As he says to the women, come in and see it for yourself. See that it's empty. Now, friends, I want you to know that just like what the angel does here in inviting the women to come in and see for themselves, the Bible urges us to look into the matter of Jesus' resurrection for ourselves. Because this is a historical reality. Because the resurrection is the central claim of Christianity. Friends, we believe Jesus rose bodily from the dead in a real historical event that took place in a real place at a real time. Jesus' resurrection is not code for Jesus' soul went to heaven and his body stayed here. Neither is this some private visionary experience. No, we believe Jesus' body returned to life in a glorified condition and he got up and he walked out of the tomb. Either after the stone had been rolled away or maybe he walked through the walls while the stone was still there. As John's gospel says, the glorified body of the risen Jesus can even walk through a locked door. We don't know when he walked out of the tomb, but out he walked. Now maybe you're sitting here today and you say, man, this sounds fantastic. I don't, I don't believe it. You know, a lot of ancient people thought the same thing too. Greeks and Romans typically thought death was the end, like a lot of people in our world do today. Most Jews believed in resurrection, but only a resurrection at the end of history. They would have been confused by the idea that one man might rise from death in the middle of history. So the resurrection is an event that nobody back then would have invented because it was so contrary to the expectations of everybody at that time and place, Jew or Gentile. But consider the evidence. On the day before Easter, Jesus' body was solidly in the custody of the Romans, sealed in this secured and guarded tomb. And the next day the body was gone. If his body was still accessible to his enemies, Surely they would have produced it immediately after Jesus' disciples claimed he was raised. But they didn't. The only logical explanation is they had his body no longer. In fact, later in our passage, we'll, say, we'll see that they admit that openly. So what happened to Jesus' body? Did his followers come to the tomb and snatch it? How could they without overpowering these soldiers and forcing open the tomb? That would be a pretty public event that belied the claim Jesus was alive, right? That would have led to the immediate arrest and execution of the disciples, which didn't happen. Well, could it be that Jesus was actually not dead when they put him in the tomb? Some have claimed that. But how is a man who has lost all of his blood, locked in a virtually airtight cave, supposed to muster the energy to unwrap himself from 75 pounds of burial wrappings, and then crouching down in the narrow entrance, able to generate the force necessary to push this massive wedged stone out of the way, and then go out and fight off Roman soldiers. No, friends, these explanations simply won't do. Jesus lived again by the power of God. And the empty tomb is the first proof of the resurrection. But understand that we do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus simply because of an empty tomb. There is other and better evidence still to come, and we see that as we continue reading. The angel's still speaking. Look at verse 7. And now he gives the women an instruction. 
He says, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Friends, this book doesn't just end with an empty tomb and Jesus' body disappears never to be seen again. No, the risen Jesus was seen by eyewitnesses. And the angel tells the women they've got to go tell Jesus' disciples he's risen because he wants to meet with them in a particular place. Back before the crucifixion, Jesus said in chapter 26, verse 32, After I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And that's what the angel now sends these women to arrange. Jesus intends to meet his disciples back in the region of Galilee, back where his ministry had started, because now there's going to be a new beginning back where it had all begun once before. And so the angel tells the women to go, verse 8. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. Now they were afraid, but this was not a terror. This was a wondrous fear marked by great joy. They had seen astonishing supernatural things before their eyes. They had heard that their beloved Jesus is alive. And as they are rejoicing, now they have one more surprise. Look at verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. Now the risen Jesus shows himself alive to these ladies. And this is the first of many post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Appearances that literally changed the lives of the people that saw him. You know, Paul records a list of many, but not all of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, Paul says. Now, Peter was a broken man. Last time we saw him in this book, he is sobbing his eyes out in guilt because he denied Jesus. A few weeks later, he is courageously preaching about Jesus in front of a massive crowd. What changed? He saw the risen Jesus. James was Jesus' brother. We saw earlier in this series that James thought Jesus was crazy. And then Jesus was executed as a criminal. James would have no earthly reason to attach himself to Jesus' name after the crucifixion. And just a few weeks later, he is worshiping his brother as God. Think about that. What would it take to get you to worship your own brother as God? Something big happened in his life, right? He saw the risen Jesus. Paul hated Christians. Paul murdered Christians. Then suddenly he's preaching the gospel. What happened? He saw the risen Jesus. John's gospel tells us on Easter morning, the disciples were cowering behind a locked door, terrified they were going to be arrested and killed. And yet later, every one of them wound up enduring horrible persecution and imprisonment. Nearly all of them died as martyrs. What emboldened them? They saw the risen Jesus. And friends, this wasn't some private hallucinatory thing. 500 people saw him at once. And Paul says to the Corinthian church, most of them are still alive. Go investigate if you have questions. They know what they saw. Friends, hundreds of people saw Jesus alive again after he was unmistakably dead. And understand, this was not some visionary experience. It was real. Next week, we're going to see that some of the eyewitnesses initially were skeptical. 
but they became convinced because the historian Luke explains Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs. And so persuasive were these proofs that after being with the risen Jesus and seeing for themselves that he was alive again, so convinced were the disciples, they spent the rest of their lives proclaiming his resurrection and they endured deaths of torture and martyrdom without recanting. There are early traditions from the church about what happened to the apostles. Uh, one famous one is that the apostle John was thrown into a vat of boiling oil. Friend, I ask you, if you were John, and if you knew it was a lie, if you knew Jesus was not risen, would you go into a vat of boiling oil to maintain your lie? I don't think anybody would. But the disciples died because they could not deny what they had seen. Because they could not deny what they knew was true, that Jesus was alive. But I want to say one more thing here. It's amazing that despite all these other appearances of Jesus, he appears first to these women. According to Jewish tradition, women were not considered reliable witnesses and could not give legal testimony. So it's noteworthy these ladies were the first to see Jesus. This isn't a story anybody would have invented in that day or culture. If you were inventing this story, you'd want the most culturally acceptable people to be your witnesses that say, we saw him first. But that isn't what we find here. Because Matthew isn't feeding us a lie, he's telling us what really happened. These ladies were the first to see him. And I think there's something beautiful in that. Because they had been the disciples who had stayed with Jesus the longest. They persevered not just past the cross, but even past the burial, they wept outside his tomb. And their great love is richly rewarded with this honor of being the first to see the risen Jesus. So I hope you see there are many persuasive reasons to believe today that Jesus is risen. But this leads to our second point, which is that Jesus' resurrection proves that everything he ever said was true. As the women encounter the risen Jesus, look at verse 9. They came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. We learn two things here. First, the risen Jesus is not a disembodied spirit. The tomb was empty for a reason. The body that went into the tomb is the body that came out of the tomb. Yes, it changed. Yes, it was supernaturally empowered. But Jesus rose from the dead bodily. He says this himself in Luke 24. He says, see my hands and feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And to prove his point, Jesus then eats a fish to show he's really embodied. Jesus rose from the dead bodily. But second, the women worship Jesus. And that is the appropriate response to the risen Jesus. We should worship him. Because Jesus' resurrection proves everything he ever said about himself was absolutely true. But Jesus said many things in his ministry that inflamed his enemies, that made them accuse him of blasphemy. In John 6, he said, I have come down from heaven. John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one. And the people that heard that knew what he was saying. They picked up stones to kill him because they said, you being a man, make yourself to be God. In the same way, when he was on trial before the Jewish religious authorities, the high priest asked Jesus in Matthew 26.63, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus speaks of himself here using two passages from the Old Testament. 
Psalm 110 speaks of the Christ as one who sits as God's equal, wielding God's own power. And Daniel 7 speaks of the Christ as the Son of Man, a human who receives an eternal, unending global kingdom. And this Son of Man, we're told, rides on the clouds of heaven. And everywhere else we see that kind of language in the Old Testament is talking about God alone. And so this Son of Man, this Christ, is a figure who is truly God and truly man. And Jesus says, that's me. And for that, the Sanhedrin said that was worthy of death. They charged him with blasphemy and shipped him off to the Romans. Friends, I want you to know Jesus openly and unapologetically claimed to be God in the flesh. Now think about this. If Jesus was lying when he said that, what would have happened after he died? He would have stayed dead. Just like all the cult leaders today who say, I'm Jesus, I'm God. When they die, they don't get up, right? And after death, Jesus would have faced God's judgment. And he would have been eternally condemned for blasphemy if he was lying. But instead, what happened? Jesus said he was God. He died. And then what happened? The Father raised him from the dead. See, in the question, who is Jesus? The only vote that matters is that of God the Father. And three times in this book now, we've seen the Father's answer. At the beginning, at Jesus' baptism in chapter 3, and in the middle, at his transfiguration in chapter 17, the Father spoke audibly from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And now once more, here at the end, in Jesus' resurrection, the Father again attests Jesus. Once more, he is declaring, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. See, the resurrection means the Father stands behind all that the Son has said about himself. Paul says in Romans 1.4, He was declared to be the Son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection proves that Jesus is God the Son in human flesh. And because that's true, because Jesus is God, that means everything he ever said is true. Because Titus 1 says, God never lies. And so when Jesus says in Matthew 25 that the Son of Man is coming in his glory and he will sit on his glorious throne and he will separate people one from another, then friends, we need to know it is absolutely true. There will be a final judgment and Jesus will sit in judgment over every person who has ever lived, including me and you. And when Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me. Even though our politically correct, pluralistic culture hates to hear it, friend, it's true. There's only one path of salvation, and it runs through Jesus alone. And when Jesus says in Mark 1, repent and believe the gospel, it's absolutely true. The one and only right response to Jesus is to repent, to turn away from our old lives of sin by turning to Jesus in faith, believing the gospel. What's that mean? It doesn't mean that we do a good work and get saved. And it's not enough to believe, like Thomas Jefferson did, that Jesus is a great teacher who said important things. No, Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The gospel says that Jesus is Lord, that he is God, that he has the right to tell us how to live and to rule over us. Saved people acknowledge that. 
To save people recognize that he is truly human, that he died for our sins, and that he rose from the dead. Friends, we must believe in the resurrection to be saved. We must accept Jesus' death and resurrection as the only basis of our salvation. Friends, Jesus says in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. There's only one way to be delivered from the penalty that we deserve. Only one way to be set free from the power of sin in our lives, and it is repentant faith in Jesus. That path leads to salvation, and every other path leads to hell. Friends, Jesus' resurrection proves that's all true. But we come now to our third point, which is that Jesus' resurrection leads to the forgiveness of all who believe. Look at verse 10. Then Jesus said to them, the women, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Just as the angel had previously instructed, Jesus tells the women to go, get the disciples together, and head to Galilee so that they will see the risen Jesus. But what Jesus says here is remarkable. Because at this point, what has happened to his 11 disciples? We haven't seen them since chapter 26, when we're told that at Jesus' arrest, all the disciples left him and fled. They deserted him at the critical moment. Peter went further and repeatedly denied even knowing Jesus that night. And while John managed to get himself back to the cross to stand as, the, as a witness alongside the women, overall, we can say that the disciples have sinned terribly. They failed Jesus. And while John's gospel says they have gathered together again by Easter morning, what are they doing? They're not at the tomb waiting. They hadn't understood or believed or remembered Jesus' prophecies of the resurrection. They hadn't even come to show him respect like the women had. Instead, they are cowering behind a locked door. They are dominated by sin and fear. And yet, what does Jesus say here? He calls them his brothers. That is some loving and gracious language under the circumstances, isn't it? It's even more remarkable when we consider that Jesus used this language before, back in chapter 12. When he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The disciples, despite their failure, have not lost their connection to Jesus. They are not rejected because of their failure. Instead, Jesus speaks a word of grace, mercy, forgiveness, and restoration here. Because they belong to him. And so not only does Jesus call them brothers, but he promises them a meeting where they will be recommissioned for the work of ministry. Friends, we see here the resurrection of Jesus leads to the forgiveness of his people. Romans 4.25 says, He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Yes, Jesus died for our sins. Friends, his resurrection matters too. It proves God is satisfied with all Jesus did. It shows that his death was effective in winning victory for us over sin. And so it enables us to be declared righteous in God's sight. It means that he speaks a word of grace, mercy, forgiveness, and restoration for us if we believe. Similarly, Hebrews 7.24 says, He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus is our high priest. He stands before the Father and pleads his blood on our behalf because if you're a believer, friend, you belong to him. 
He calls you and me his brothers and sisters. He isn't going to deny us. He isn't going to forsake us even when we fail him, as we have and as we will. He will always be there for his people as he has been for all who came before us and for all who come after us. Because in his resurrection body, he lives forever. He is always interceding on our behalf as our high priest. And his resurrection and everlasting life guarantees our perpetual forgiveness and acceptance in heaven's court. And so Jesus' resurrection grounds our forgiveness. And yet, while forgiveness is available through Jesus' death and resurrection, tragically, not everyone will be forgiven because not everyone will repentantly believe in him. And that's what we see now in our last point, which is Jesus' resurrection is denied only at great personal peril. As the women go off to tell the disciples the good news about Jesus' resurrection, Matthew shifts the scene back to the guards who had been at the tomb. After the angel departs, they gather themselves, and some of them decide they need to make a report. Look at verse 11. While they, the women, were going... Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Now their boss, the Roman governor, had put them under the direction of the Jewish leaders in chapter 27. So that's where they go to make their report. And they tell the chief priests all that had taken place about the earthquake and the angel and the empty tomb and the risen Jesus. How will the chief priests respond? Surely now they will believe, right? After all, while Jesus was hanging on the cross, they'd mocked him, saying, He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. But now Jesus has done them one better. He hasn't come down from the cross. He's come up from the grave. Surely they will believe, right? Nope. Instead, look at verse 12. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, and we'll stop there. They get the whole Sanhedrin together, the Supreme Court, the same court that had condemned Jesus for blasphemy. Are they getting back together to rethink their verdict? Are they figuring out how to publicly repent for murdering God's son? Nope. Look at verse 12. They gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Their big plan is a cover-up. Let's have the soldiers say they fell asleep. Let's have them say the disciples stole Jesus' body. But friends, this story is nonsensical. If the soldiers were asleep, how do they know who stole Jesus' body? This doesn't even make sense. But it's the best thing a Sanhedrin can come up with. But they got a problem. This story only works if the guards go along with it. And there were some good reasons the guards might not go along with it. Because Roman soldiers who were caught sleeping on duty were subject to, at a minimum, a very severe beating, and most of the time they were put to death. Which is why the historian Polybius writes, Owing to the extreme severity and the inevitableness of the penalty, the night watches of the Roman army are most scrupulously kept. Of course, these Roman soldiers hadn't been asleep. Of course, they hadn't let the disciples steal the body. So why should they say they had and expose themselves to terrible jeopardy. Well, the Sanhedrin offers them two reasons. First, they offer a substantial bribe. And second, they promise in verse 14, and if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. Sanhedrin says, hey, if, if Pilate hears about this, we'll vouch for you. And thinking it over, 
The soldiers decide it's better to be rich and have powerful friends than have to explain the empty tomb without those perks. Verse 15, so they took the money and did as they were directed, and this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This was the official response to the resurrection from Easter Sunday down to the time when Matthew wrote these words, and this remains a popular claim today, although we've already seen how totally unbelievable it is that the disciples might have stolen Jesus' body. Now, isn't this pathetic? Here are these so-called religious leaders who have just heard about Jesus' resurrection from their own soldiers, and what's their first thought? It's not fear of God. It's not the recognition that we have sinned terribly. We need to repent. No, it's a fear of man. It's how can we paper this over so that we can keep our power and avoid earthly accountability? And in this, they show how hard their hearts are towards God, how guilty they are. No wonder Jesus said to them in chapter 23, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? But friends, we need to understand the situation those religious leaders were in back then is a situation many people are in today, including maybe some of us in this room. Oh, we might hear about the evidences for the resurrection. Some part of us might recognize they might even seem compelling. But we won't believe in Jesus. Not because of a lack of evidence, but because we don't want to believe. Because believing means we have to change our lives, and we don't want to. Because we love our sin, and we don't want to repent. Or because we want to do what we want to do. And we understand that being a Christian means taking Jesus as your Lord and having to follow him. Or we don't believe because believing means risk in our increasingly anti-Christian culture. And we don't want that hassle. Or because we run with a crowd of people that think they're sophisticated who scorn the things of God, and we don't want to lose our reputations or our friends. And so like the Sanhedrin, we tell ourselves a story. Oh, God's not real. Jesus isn't really God. My sin isn't a problem. The resurrection's a myth. And we imagine that by believing these lies, we can just wish all of this away and never have to deal with it again. But friend, I warn you, that is folly. The truth is your excuses aren't going to do you a bit of good in the end. Because God is real, because Jesus is risen, because Jesus is Lord, and because one day every single one of us will stand before him for judgment. And friend, you need to know if you will not bow the knee to Jesus in repentant faith, you are on a collision course with God's wrath, just like the unbelieving religious leaders in our passage today. I plead with you, repent and believe in Jesus. But today, if you know Jesus, then rejoice. Rejoice because your sins are forgiven. Rejoice because Jesus has brought you into the family of God. Hebrews 2 says he is not ashamed to call you brother. Rejoice because the resurrection gives us hope in the face of death. That just as Jesus rose from death in a glorious indestructible body and lives forever, so too will every one of us who have trusted him for salvation. 1 John 3 says, when he appears, we shall be like him because we'll see him as he is. Believer, know for certain you don't have to fear death. You can have hope in every situation because you will obtain the outcome of your faith, because you will obtain a resurrection body like his, and because you will live with him in the new creation along all believers throughout all ages in endless joy and love and bliss. And that is all because Jesus is risen. And so may we today with Paul say, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ.